Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn once again to Judges. How many of you remember the narrative of Nehemiah 8? The wall was complete. There was no golden shovel dedication of the wall to Nehemiah for his great leadership skills. Instead, do you remember what happened? Are you even listening to me? Wah, 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 wah. Some of you are like, where are you at? I'm back here, please. Um, Ezra came up to the wooden pulpit, and he began to read from the law of God. From morning to night, and they were all standing. Some of you thought you were in Nehemiah 8 just a few minutes ago when Maxim read the scriptures, and you've never stood for two chapters before. May God give us some spiritual endurance, yes? Um, it was actually a wonderful moment. Praise God for your endurance, though. Some of you could have been seated if you needed to, and I hope you did if you did need to be seated. This morning, we're going to start a summer series. It'll go for 18 weeks, um, I think, 18, 13, something like that. Somewhere in between 13 and 18. Uh, September 18th, I think, is the final Sunday. We're going to go through the book of Judges this summer. Uh, we're calling the series Broken Saviors. I will be speaking for some of those. The other pastors will as well, as well as our pastoral interns. Looking forward to this study together. Uh, chapter 1 and 2 into chapter 3 that Maxim read for you just a few minutes ago is an introduction to the book. It's actually two introductions. And I know that it was a little bit wearisome probably to go through all of those geographical names that you've never heard of and perhaps will never want to hear about again. Um, and sometimes it's very difficult to read about things that happened so long ago. And the book of Judges could probably have an R rating to it. There's a lot of violence. I promise you that we're not going to read publicly all of the passages that are in this book. Um, but we are going to read some of it, and we are going to speak from all of it. My desire and our pastor's desire for us is to see God's redemptive work even through such dark pages of the scriptures. And the book of Judges is that. Now, I know that there are many in this room that enjoy history, enjoy military history. And when you go to these battlefields that you enjoy touring, I always want to stop in the visitor center first and watch that 10 or 11 minute video that gives you kind of an overview before you go out into the battlefield. Some of you know your, your military history so well, you don't need that video. But for me, that helps orientate myself, right? You're able to get yourself figuring out what all of those monuments are about. That's what Judges 1 and 2 are supposed to do for you. Because in Joshua 23 and 24, lest you have forgotten, Joshua, right before he dies, says to the people of God, you must be careful to love the Lord your God. You need to choose this day who you're going to serve. And he had that very infamous phrase that many of you have on plaques in your home. But it's for me and my house we will serve who? The Lord. And you know what the people of Israel said? We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve Jehovah. Joshua said, well, get rid of all of your pagan gods. Clean yourself up. Repent. Now, what happens in Joshua 23 and 24 makes us surprised when we come to Judges and we see what's taking place there. Now, the book of Judges covers a time period of about 400 years. We don't know for sure because we don't know for sure when the date of the Exodus is. But give or take, about four centuries. So we're dealing with the death of Joshua all the way to the beginning of the monarchy when Samuel will anoint Saul as the first king of Israel. That's the part of history that we're dealing with in these 21 chapters. 
These are judges, but you shouldn't think of those with black robes and a gavel. Okay? This is not legal jurisprudence. These were military political leaders, tribal leaders, that God used to temporarily, very flawed, te- flawed individuals, to temporarily rescue his people. There are 12 of them that are discussed in the book of Judges. And if you were just wanting to have a quick flyover, I think this might be helpful for you. On your handout on the back, you'll notice those 12 judges listed as well as the cycle that's repeated seven times throughout the book of Judges. But these judges served during this time period, but the way the book is laid out is the introduction are the chapters that we just heard read for us. Chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. That is an introduction given twice. It's supposed to give you an orientation to all of the violence and the rated R uh, material that you are going to read and try to understand. Then from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 16, we have the stories of these 12 judges. You with me? And then the last five chapters, chapters 17 to 21, it is just a huge mess. In chapter 19, we have that infamous story of the concubine being chopped up and sent to the various tribals, tribal leaders. Horrendous. Those last five chapters ends with this phrase, and it's really a summary of the book. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, with that in mind, I want us to just take a few thoughts from these opening chapters to give us an introduction to our study that will begin with the first judge next week. So I want to make a few points to you, and I want you to understand that these characters are given to us to help us long for the great rescuer, the great judge of all judges, Jesus Christ. And I want us to be careful not to look in this book as often as a kid I was pointed to to find heroes. Now, I have often mentioned the flannel graph from this pulpit, and I don't mean to speak disparagingly about flannel graphs. I understand they're making a comeback, and that's a great thing. But flannel graphs, as I recall them, I always look forward to my favorite judge, which was Samson. I thought that Samson was the closest thing to the Incredible Hulk available in the Bible. Don't make me angry. You won't like me when I'm angry. That was when I was a kid. When I became a teenager and college student, I liked the fact that he always had pretty women around him. There were never good reasons why I liked Samson. My point is, parents, let's not encourage our people to dare to be a Gideon, our kids to dare to be a Gideon, or dare to be a Samson. These are very flawed individuals, and the glory goes to God alone that he used these flawed individuals to rescue his people. And we always want to be looking to Christ, because these judges, after reading 21 chapters, I hope that you are morally and just fatigued. There is a certain amount of fatigue after reading this material. I don't know if you know this as a tip, but if you get the ESV app, the new ESV app, um, the Bible app. You can actually hear the Bible read to you by Kristen Getty. And uh, that is a very good thing, and particularly with Judges. Judges already has so many edges to it. I found that on my travel back from Cape Cod, listening to Kristen uh, Getty um, read the book of Judges was helpful. So that's just a tip if in your reading that would be helpful to you. Judges 1 gives us a few principles, and, Genesis, and Judges 2 does as well. And I want to give those to you just briefly today. Here's the first one. And I hope you have a handout because these are not really good alliterated points. They're not alliterated at all. So if you don't have a handout, you need to write them down, okay? Here's the first big point that I see in this intro. And we're going to see this over and again 
in the book of Judges. Here it is. Halfway obedience and trickle-down blessings are deceiving. I told you it wasn't worded well, but that's the best I can do. Halfway obedience and trickle-down blessings are deceiving. What happens immediately when you open up Judges is it seems like they're doing really well, and they actually are. But if you know what's coming, you notice that, hey, I'm looking for reasons why this happened. So the title of this message is, What Happened? So you get into the heart of Judges, and it is a complete immoral mess. But just in Joshua 23 and 24, they said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord with all of our hearts. We'll be careful to love the Lord. So what happened? Well, what we immediately see is that they seem to be enjoying the blessings of a previous generation's faith and trust in God. But I want all of us to understand that you cannot live on someone else's faith and confidence and trust in God. Immediately it starts with the death of Joshua and we're told that the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. They wanted to know who goes up first. There were basically two, um, two sections or two bands of overtaking the land that God had promised them and to deal with, in capital punishment, the Canaanites. We dealt with that in Sunday school. I'm not going to revisit that now. But as they went into the land, they basically broke the back of the Canaanite resistance under Joshua. But there was still a lot of battle to do and resettling in the various places that God had given his people. All of the tribes had their separate land. And now they were commanded to do that. But they had no leader. But they seek the Lord. We don't know exactly how they sought the Lord. Probably through the, what's called the Urim and Thummim. These were two stones that were behind the breastplate of the high priest that would basically indicate yes or no, God's will. And it appears that in some way, they sought the Lord, maybe not through the Urim and Thummim, maybe it was through a priest or a prophet who was giving them a word from the Lord as they ask. But nevertheless, they asked the Lord, and we're not surprised at which tribe is told to go up first. Who is it? Judah. And we know from Genesis 49 that this is going to be the tribe that the scepter will always reign from. And ultimately, it will be for the lion of the tribe of who? Judah, Jesus Christ. So Judah is going to lead. He asks Simeon to join him, and then they go into battle. And we have a couple stories given for us here. One's romantic. We always remember Caleb, right? Twelve men went to spy on Canaan. Ten were bad, and two were... Okay, some of you know that song. The two that were good were Joshua and who? Caleb. And here's Caleb, still alive even after Joshua's death, and he's still the guy who said, I want that mountain. What is he saying here? He's saying... Whoever will take Kirath Sephir, I will give him my daughter, Axa, for a wife. Now, some of you unmarried ladies in here say that's an awful idea. It was a different time period, and basically what he was saying is if there's anybody who believes God and will trust him and will go to battle with something God has already said he will deliver to his people, that's the kind of guy I want to give my daughter to. And I say amen. And this is what happens. So, Othniel, Othniel, who is going to be the first judge that we're going to deal with next week is the one who goes and takes up the land and he is given Aksa, um, the daughter of Caleb. Now, she is a very diligent one because she says, Dad, you've given me the land in the Negev. That's the desert. And every homemaker knows that if you live in the desert, you need something, water. <laughs> so she asked for water. She asked for more land through her husband. We don't know if he asked or not. But she's bold enough to ask her dad, and he gives her both the upper springs and the lower springs. 
And again, we're seeing victory happen. You see that Judah continues to go and take, take over these settlements and, and, and resettle them. You'll notice in verse number 17 that they did exactly what God commanded them to do in Deuteronomy 7. They devoted it to destruction. So everything looks like it's going what? Peachy, really well. They seem to be undefeated after Joshua dies. But that is to miss certain things because things turn in verse 19. I want you to see this contradiction in verse 19. It says, and the Lord was with Judah. We already know that, right? But what happens? And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had what? Chariots of fire. Iron, sorry. Not chariots of fire. That's a song. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Did somebody say chariots of fire with me or did they just correct me? I used to play that on the piano, by the way. I can do that. No. Chariots of iron. They were high tech. And so here's the irony. God was with Judah to take over the land, but they couldn't possess it because they had what? They had these chariots of iron. They had this inability, but yet they had the Lord with them. So we're already seeing this kind of this breakup. And what I want you to notice here is this group of people, as we look at this intro, they were living on trickle-down blessings from Caleb and from this generation who believed God's promises, but they had not embraced it on their own. If you just turn back to Genesis, I'm sorry, Judges 2, keep calling this Genesis, Judges 2, look at verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not what? Know the Lord of the work that he had done for Israel. Turn back. He's not simply saying that the parents were just bad parents. They lived with the Canaanites. They were told to exterminate the Canaanites. If they didn't, they would begin to serve their gods and worship their idols, and they would participate in all of the vile sins, bestiality, child sacrifice, homosexuality, adultery, idolatry. And all of those sins they ultimately began to participate in. God warned them. But instead of completely eradicating them, they decided, we're going to put a smiling face on the God of Israel. This is too harsh. We can make them be our servants. And so there was a generation that grew up that it wasn't that they didn't know about what God had done historically, but they didn't know God personally. And they thought because there's no Mount Sinai shaking and smoking and earthquakes and lightning that maybe this partial obedience, halfway obedience, isn't so bad after all. I mean, God hasn't brought down his curse on us or his judgment on us and after all, we've, we're in the land, and Judah's taking the leadership, and we've actually made some of these people that we let live be our servants, our slaves. What do we see from this? We see a group of people that instead of obeying the Lord fully, they are relying on the residual trickle-down blessings of a generation before them that believed God and said, we will serve and be careful to love God with all of our hearts. Is that possible to happen in the church today? Is it possible that we have enjoyed, even as a country, the residual trickle-down blessings of men and women who had virtue? And whether they were Christians, they had a Judeo-Christian value system, They believed in God. And even the founding documents of this country are founded on those principles. And we, as my generation and many generations, have enjoyed the trickle-down blessings 
of all of that wonderful, God-fearing, biblical principles built our country. But that's true in the church as well. You know, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Now, those baseball fans in here may remember this, but in 1987, I think I was 13 years old then, the Milwaukee Brewers started out, and I don't follow the Milwaukee Brewers, but I followed them because they were 4-0, and then they were 6-0. They ultimately went 13-0, which you baseball fans know, that's, that's a pretty tall feat to start a season 13-0 before they lost their first game. They ultimately went 17-1 in April, and it was one of the best starts. I think the second best start of any Major League Baseball team. I think the Orioles had done better in 1982 or something like that. But then May came. You know what happened in May? They did something else that was almost unthinkable. They lost 12 games in a row. <laughs> they went 0-12. That's also almost impossible to do. And they ended up not even making the playoffs. So they started well, but they ended horribly. What we're watching in this intro is the things that you start seeing the cracks in the vase. You start seeing the fissures. You start seeing the problems of compromise. I want to ask you today, very personally, are there people that have been members of this local church for decades, but you're living off of a previous generation's commitment to Jehovah? Your commitment to Christ is more familial, more traditional than it is personal. Is it possible that we, too, can enjoy the blessings of a generation who believed God's promises, embraced God's promises, but we don't really embrace them ourselves? In fact, we dismiss half obedience all the time because God hasn't brought down any heavy judgment, so maybe it's okay. Second principle I want you to see here is God's holiness and sin's corruption begin to be minimized. How does a group of people who says we will believe God, we will serve God, then they turn out to be what we see in Judges? Secondly, God's holiness and sin's corruption begins to be minimized. Now, I can't mention all of these. Maxim read them all, but I just want to highlight them for you. In verse 19, we see Judah with the Lord. They do not go ahead and fulfill what they were told to do because they had these chariots of iron. And then you'll notice in verse 21, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean. Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land, verse 27. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Do you see it? It's almost like a drumbeat. Are you guys with me? Some of you, some of you, you look like you're on a different planet again. Come back, please. Okay, so, so the repetition here is they stop short of fully obeying God. You see that? But I want you to see this compromise with corruption and sin. In Deuteronomy 20, God was very clear to them. There were rules for war, but there was a separate war plan for the Canaanites. Every Canaanite was to be removed. Men, women, children, and all animals. Anything that breathed. Now again, I hope that you can at least listen to, if you weren't here for Sunday school, about the removal and the killing of the Canaanites because we spoke about that in detail. I'm not going to do that here. What they do is they show, we think that's too harsh. We would rather make them our servants. Let them live in the land as long as we're in control, but removing them completely, that's not really kind. You'll notice in verse number 24, they did something God told them not to do with the Canaanites. Don't make any covenants with the Canaanites. Look at what they did. The tribe of Joseph, 
they actually sent him some spies and saw a man coming out of Bethel, and they said, where's the entrance? Now, if you're wondering why are they asking where the entrance is, because they just saw the guy come out of the, the city, it was probably camouflaged in some way. And the main strategic entrance you couldn't get to if you were an immigrant or a foreigner. So he was asking for, they were asking for a way in. But this is not like Rahab. They say, if you will tell us how to get into the city, look at the phrase, we will deal, what's the word? Kindly. That's the word hesed. That's the word for God's covenant loyalty to his people. They are doing exactly what God told them not to do, making covenant with the enemy. And they're going to allow them to stay. And this guy doesn't do like Rahab and become an Israelite, become part of the people of God. He goes and builds another city and calls it the name of the city that he just got left, that he just left, Luz. And later on, you'll notice in our Old Testament reading, they become a thorn in the side of Israel. I'm only sharing that with you because what's happening is they are beginning to say, you know what, this look that Jehovah has of totally removing all the Canaanites, that's too harsh. Let's have a different approach. Let's have them live amongst us. Let's make them be our slaves. Then we can get some real work out of them. And this compromise actually is a better solution than what God had given us as the marching orders for dealing with these sinners who were now up for the death penalty, according to Genesis 15. Whenever there's an airplane crash, this is what they do, right? They look for the what? The black box. The black box is supposed to tell them why this plane just fell out of the air or whatever. What is the black box for what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Judges? Here it is, folks. There is this lack of looking at sin and God's holiness the way God looks at sin and the way God is altogether holy. And don't think that the church is immune to this. It sickened me, to be honest with you, just on vacation to go by so many churches that are advertising on their sign that what God's word clearly calls sin and wickedness and perversity, we are open and accepting of that. I'm not trying to make a political point here. I'm trying to make a biblical point, folks. These are not the people who claim to be the pagans. These are the people of God who now say what God calls sin, it's not sin. Now, that's just one example. But how many of the Canaanite theories are now becoming invasive into the church and, and swallowed without any biblical discernment that now we say, okay, you know what? This is a better look than actually saying, here's what God's word says. This is a compromise that's not unique to the people of God. And some people, commentators, many of them say it this way. Instead of the Israelites making the Canaanites followers of God, it was the canonization of the people of God. Number three, being stirred emotionally and being changed spiritually are confused. There are going to be seven cycles here, and he mentions those seven cycles, but before he mentions those cycles, we'll notice in chapter two, the angel of the Lord shows up. Now, this is just a biblical point I think will be helpful to you, and I'm going to speed through this, but whenever you see the angel of the Lord with the article, the angel of the Lord, oftentimes this is what we call a, a Christophany an appearance of the pre-incarnate Son of God. The way you know those are moments, not just another angel, another messenger, is when he gives attributes that only go to God. And he said, I was the one who led you out from Egypt 
brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. So he's speaking as God. The other way you know is when he receives worship. Here in this passage, this is clearly, I believe, a pre-incarnate visitation from none other than Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes in and he begins to tell you what the problem is, you know that he is going to tell you the truth. This happens in Revelation 2 and 3, doesn't it? When he visits the churches in Asia Minor and he comes into each of those candlesticks. So if Jesus comes into East Brandywine Baptist Church and he begins to point out the things that are right and point out the things that are wrong, folks know this, whatever he says is true. And here he says to them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I made a covenant with you. I told you to completely destroy the Canaanites. You didn't. You halfway obeyed me. And now they are going to be thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke, what did they do? How did they respond? They began to what? Cry and weep. You know what happened here is they were obviously emotionally stirred, and that's a good thing. I think we're too often not emotionally stirred by truth and our affections are left unstirred. But when only our emotions are stirred and only our, our eyes are wet and there's no change of heart, this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 7 calls worldly sorrow. It's not really godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And the way we know that it's not real genuine repentance is this cycle continued seven times in the book of Judges. You can track it under the judges. Here's the cycle. They rebelled against God. There was retribution by God. They were enslaved by an oppressor. Then they began to have remorse. I don't want to call it repentance. They began to cry out to God for rescue. God in his mercy rescued them by these, these flawed leaders, these judges. Then they had some rest. And guess where they were right back at? Rebellion. Just keeps going around. Another thing I noticed when we were in New England, again, after being in New England for, for almost 20 years, but we were on vacation last week, and I, I, I'm always moved, a little bit nostalgia, but, uh, but a lot of bit of grief to see these beautiful churches that are now abandoned all over New England. Churches that were started, one that we were playing basketball out in the parking lot, you know, 1700 started. That church was founded there. It was the first church on Cape Cod. This is all over New England, and if you're familiar with that place, you know that that's one of the areas where the Great Awakening took place, where God sent wonderful revival. People were born into the kingdom, born again. Christians were revived. But now what church historians call places like that, because they're so cold, is they're places that have been burned over. Now, what they mean by that is oftentimes what happened is there was a lot of godly sorrow, but there was also a lot of worldly sorrow. There was a lot of emotion, but there was not lasting change or regeneration. And it makes it more difficult for those people to actually repent of their sins. What we see here is they're crying, they're sad, they're remorseful, but there's no real change. This week I, w I was very convicted about a sin in my life. And I'm not sharing with this with you where you will think that I'm spiritual because that's the point of the illustration. I was moved to great tears. And then I was studying this again this week and the Lord had really opened my eyes to a, 
a sin habit in my life, a lack of Christian love and care, and I'm not going to get into that, but, but I wept, and I really cried like I hadn't cried for a long time because of this sin, but two days later, I'd forgotten about it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Can you believe that? I did. Um, two days before that, I was weeping. Two days later, oh yeah. How does that happen? Well, here, here's how it happens. We, we can weep, we can cry, we can, we can feel really bad about an area of our lives that the, Lord, the Spirit of God opens up without really repenting and seeking biblical change. And this is certainly what happens, and that finishes with this point. Sin cycle and rescue are on repeat with worsening consequences. This cycle doesn't just repeat seven times. It gets worse. So what we see after the last cycle, the last seventh cycle, what you see in chapters 17 to 21, complete apostasy. This is when they're cutting up concubines and sending them all over the, the, the 12 tribes. There's rape and abuse and incest and all kinds of wickedness. These are the same people who said we'll serve the Lord. What happened? Folks, when we don't truly repent and seek the Savior, this cycle of being in bondage, saying I'm sorry, having some rest, coming a little proud that we've had some victory, right back into it, it gets worse because our heart gets hardened. So what do we learn from this? We learn that truly insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results, but the true spiritual truth is there's only one deliverer. And when you get to the end of Judges, I hope that you will find week after week that there's just like this fatigue, <laughs> this moral fatigue of, oh God, rescue us. Well, here's the, the one saving quality of the book of Judges. I hope it will be the major theme after each judge that we look at is that Jesus said in John 10 that he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd cares and loves his sheep. He gives his life for his sheep. His sheep know him. He knows their name. They know him when he calls them and no one will ever be able to remove them from his care. You see, the ultimate judge is Jesus. And the ultimate rescue is not any of these earthly judges. He was giving them a little glimpse when they would repent, but he would show his mercy was even more than their sin. Do you think God understood that their repentance wasn't real? But his mercy was more. Have you ever read judges and you're like, why did he rescue them? He knew he, they were just crying. They weren't really sorry. They were right back at it as soon as the judge died. You know who the star of this story is? Our merciful God, who heard the cry of his sinful, insincere people, and he still answered. So who gets the glory? Not these 12 flawed judges, and certainly not the people of God who kept repenting and kept falling back into sin. But it's our great and merciful God who ultimately sent the one judge to save the world, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do find ourselves fatigued as we read through this violent, immoral, 
anti-God book. But then we see your hand continuing to bring rescue and salvation to your people. Hearing their cry for mercy and their mourning over their sin. And you were quick to hear and quick to save and quick to forgive. Father, we just praise you this morning that you hold us fast even when our hearts wander and are cold. We confess to you that we're often moved emotionally, but not moved to true biblical repentance. And we pray that you would change us, that we'd not just be stirred emotionally, but we'd be changed spiritually. And we ask that this study of this Old Testament book would cause us to love our Savior more, to hate sin more and love righteousness, and like your Son, that you would pour upon us the oil of gladness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.